Well, good day, guys. Welcome to Life in the Peloton. I'm Mitch Docker, and have I got a banging episode for you this week? This is a big one. Before we get to talk about that, let's talk about our proud partners who are bringing this episode to you each and every week this year, Rafa. Now, Rafa have gone away and they've done something really excited. They've gone and collaborated with Amsterdam-based streetwear brand Pitta. Launching on the 23rd, following its announcement of the Pitta cycling team. Now, this team was formed with a really cool mission to inspire people from all backgrounds to take to two wheels. The Pitta cycling team has partnered with Rafa to create role models that inspire the next generation of cyclists while making the sport accessible to anyone, however, and wherever they choose. They've made a really cool, slick-looking kit, and the heart of the team crest is a gecko. It's chosen for speed and that flamboyant appearance. The team's motto is, one more road to cross. I think it's a really cool collaboration because it encapsulates Rafa and Pitta's share mission to inspire people of all backgrounds, to just embrace cycling lifestyle. That's what we're trying to do here at Life in the Peloton, is just spread the word of how great this sport really is. Speaking of that, let's talk about the legend himself. This episode, Cadell Evans, 2011 Tour de France winner, 2009 road world champion. He's won two stages of the Tour de France. He's been to the Olympics four times. He's one of three non-Europeans to win the Tour de France, Greg LeMond before him and Egan Bernal after. But before all that, he was a mountain bike rider. He won the World Cup mountain bike two times. He was the youngest winner of the World Cup mountain bike at 21 years old, yet he is the oldest Tour de France winner post-war time at age 34. A 20-year career which started successfully and ended successfully. He is just undoubtedly a legend of cycling. And he was inducted into the Australian Sporting Hall of Fame in 2020. He has been made an Order of Australia in 2013 as well. He is Australia's most celebrated cyclist. This was a really big podcast for me to do. I know in the whole world of cycling, everyone knows how great a cyclist Cadell Evans is. He is a legend. But when it comes to Australia, like I said, He is the top of the tree. So it was a really big podcast and a big honor for me to talk to him. But I did take a little bit of a different angle on this podcast because there was so much to cover with Cadell. You know, of course, the Tour de France win, of course, the World Championships. We touch on that as well. Don't get me wrong. But I really wanted to talk about the way that he paved his path as a young cyclist, how determined he was and what he has done to make it to the top and that continual battle even when he was in the world tour he had to continually battle the two times second places at the Tour de France to finally get that win at the Tour de France this is the stuff that I really wanted to know and I wanted for young riders to hear that story so they know what it takes to get to the top when they've got that goal I think that was most inspiring for me to hear from Cadell to tell that story about where he came from his passion throughout his whole cycling career Now, people ask me, what are the things that I have taken over from my pro life? And aside from my riding legs, of course, one other thing is AG1. I was using AG1 when I was racing overseas for a few reasons. It's more than just greens. It's a comprehensive blend of vitamins and minerals, probiotics, and superfood complexes. It helps provide digestive support, immunity support, metabolism, energy, and stress support. It's that all-in-one. Of course, I'm no longer at the pointy end of professional sport, but I still want to feel good for my everyday life, 
for my family, for my kids. I like to start my day with AG1 because I know from then on, whatever happens, I've got a nice nutritional foundation for the day. It's like a nice, good kickstart. It's a part of my routine. I simply get up first thing in the morning, I grab my shaker, I add some water, a scoop of AG1, shake it up and drink it down. It's that simple. Another great thing too is AG1 have portion size travel packs to take with you when you're on the road to make things just that little bit easier so you're not missing out as well. It really is my go-to these days and it's something I look forward to every day when I wake up. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, AG1 is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Now head across to drinkag1.com slash life in the peloton. That's drinkag1.com slash life in the peloton. Check it out. Now guys, sit back. Enjoy this one. This is Cadell Evans. We're on the eve of the Tour de France, so I thought this was an appropriate episode to put out just before we kick off next month with the Tour de France. This is the Cadell Evans story, guys. I really hope you enjoy it. Well, here we are. This has been a long and weighted podcast, but this is one of the best ones. Cadell Evans, unfortunately, we can't do this in person. We're both Melbournians, well, Victorians. Uh, you're not quite Melbourne-based these days, but you're overseas We at your other base in Switzerland. Welcome to the podcast. Great to talk to you live in the Peloton. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, my first question is, hang on, you're meant to be asking me, life <laughs> yeah, in okay, the Peloton. Shouldn't you, shouldn't you be changing it now to life outside <laughs> of the Peloton? Because that's probably something that we're probably going to touching on that's a very good point and i had to think about this when i was rehashing what the podcast was going to be sort of 18 months ago i'm like oh what could it be i'm not in the peloton anymore but i went hang on there's pro pelotons but there's also a lot of other pelotons out there there's gravel pelotons there's bunch rides which are pelotons you know there's there's many pelotons out there there's even commuters who make pelotons in the morning they may not speak to each other but that is some of the fiercest racing i've ever seen so i want to explore all the pelotons out there the hell ride you know get in that that peloton you know about that these mountain bike pelotons that i experienced over in cape Elvik, and i'm experiencing new pelotons i can tell you cadell that i tell you the world tour peloton was tough but these other ones, they've got a lot of different rules and stuff that I'm still trying to work out. Yes. <laughs> well, I want to go back to the beginning. And I look, I know you've grown up just in the north of Australia. You grew up just outside of Catherine, a place that I've never been to, a place that I don't think a lot of Australians have been to, let alone on a bike. What was it like growing up in Catherine, you know, as a young, oh, as a young was, boy? Yeah, I was really young then and we moved away when I was three. The reason mm. you haven't been there is because an Aboriginal settlement. It was called Bamili when we lived there. It's called Barunga now. My mother went back with, um, she did an interesting thing with a um, friend of mine, a journalist for L'Equipe, and, and she went back and visited and you know, got the permits and went there with... Um, his name's Philip Legay, he's a, a journalist for L'Equip, and they did this sort of um, in-depth review of non-European-based uh, winners of the Tour de France. And so he went to Colombia, he went to Baranga, mm. and um, so yeah, he, my mother's been back, but it is it is a long way from anywhere, and that's it was different. I only have very vague memories because i was very young but um, my parents went up there when they were very young and i came along and they went up there for um, work opportunities adventure whatever and yeah that's how i that's how i on my passport and it says born in catherine (laughs) it does it does say it everywhere when you look you up um it does say that but i think more interesting for me and you can say this is um not more interesting sorry but a bit more closer to home correct me if I'm wrong but I, I sort of feel like your cycling the cycling part of your life really accelerated when you were down in Melbourne 
Um, you move to a place that I've ridden past many a times, the training grounds where I grew up as well, sort of probably 10 years after you or maybe even more. These were the roads in the north. I'm talking about Plenty. I'm talking about Yang Yin Road. I'm talking about the Plenty Gorge. Mountain biking, which is now a bit of a mountain bike mecca. A mate of mine, a, a mutual friend of ours, Andy White, aka Fixo, he's named one of the trails out there, the Cadell Evans Heritage Trail. But the question I have for you, what was it like growing up out there and also just, you know, riding through the, the gorge back in those days on a mountain biker? Because if anyone doesn't know, Cadell cut his teeth in cycling as a mountain biker. Um, yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned it in that regard and my, we moved back to Melbourne when I was about um, 12 years old, something 11 years old. Just I was in first year high school and and we moved out to Plenty, Yan Yan Road because um, my family have horses and so mm. land and things and I was living out there. I was like, oh, I'm on my own out here. How, how am I going to get around? And oh, I'll get a bike. Oh, maybe I'll get a mountain bike because there was no footpaths or anything and the road was busy. So at least there's a nice little path on the side of the road and I can ride my bike and just to start riding to school and have some independence and that's really how mountain biking started for me or, or cycling started for me it was a, a cousin of a cousin um, who I'm we're still friends today but he was sort of a little bit like cycling watched the Tour de France and mm. like mountain biking and it was him was like oh let's go and do this ride and we went I remember this first the first mountain bike ride I ever did we went up the Mount Everard trail and then we went rode down the road back through St Andrews and back I was like okay I remember it was like 60k and we were like 12 13 years old or something. oh wow we didn't know anything and it's like oh well that was good and then he's like oh there's a race on in blue lake what's this blue Lake? i didn't even know about blue lake oh, i go there and I'm like, wow look at these trails it's like 5k from home i think my mum drove us out there she dropped us off that day it was the fat tire flies they ran two races in one day and had this little race and i signed up paid my ten dollars ten dollars deposit for a number and start this race and there's all you know you're home with my little simple little bike at a specialized rock hopper sport which i bought like second hand uh-huh. very modest awesome. very modest um uh, beginnings. Um, and I did my, li- I did my little race in sub juniors under 16 and oh yeah, that was all right. And then there was another one in the afternoon. I did that one. And, oh wow. That was, am- and I remember my mama came and picked us up afterwards. Oh, how was that? what do you think? It was hard. Oh, did you enjoy it? Yeah, I did actually. Oh, would you like to do it again? Yes. Yes, I would. And so I went and did some other fat tire fire races and some other races run by other other race organizers in Melbourne and that's where it really started and really my own initiative I never had anyone in my family in cycling Mm. it was purely just I wanted to do it I was riding to school it was 10 k's each way to school but just riding there with my VC books in my backpack I was already (laughs) I was already doing 100 k's a week just doing that and then started (laughs) um I met up with a group and one of the um walkers wheels a bike shop in Montmorency they used to have Mm. these meet in the morning peloton small group and go for these rides and on that ride there was a guy who had a bit of experience experience in coaching and things and started talking to him and learning and so on. And it was all very um, pre-internet. Mm. There was no information. But I just discovered that I got my first mountain bike magazines, read about Node over and head over and John Tomac. What, you can be professional about this? What have I got to do to do that? No, whatever it takes, I'm doing it. Well, I don't care how much I have to train. That's what I'm doing. And from then on, I just became, I eat, I sleep, I do school, I ride my bike and that's it. And, and then I just became in this like almost tunnel vision, but I was like 15 years old. 16 years old i'm going to be a professional and i'm going to do whatever is necessary to do that and i don't care how hard it is i'm going to do it and i, I you know i'm waking up 5 30 3 4 5 mornings a week before school <laughs> going out riding in the rain and this is you know the batteries and things you'd buy a 
Packer Seaside batteries, which is sort of like my spending money for the week and they'd go flatten like the second day, <laughs> things like this. The, the equipment and things were so bad. I had no clothes to stay warm and everything was wet and I'd go out and come back and I'd ride my wet muddy bike to school that morning. I'd get wet again sitting in class, still wet, and fall asleep in the afternoon in class because I'd you know, ridden the King Lake or something before school. And, but that's that's really how it all, all started for me. Like even things, I've heard these stories and it's a road that I know well. It's a herd road. It's it's a it's a roller coaster road that runs parallel next to Yan Yan. You had to get to a place called Eltham. You went to school in Eltham and you didn't just choose the easy route. You chose this absolute hell road. And it's like, you know, it's 20% up and down, up and down. <laughs> you know, of course you chose the hardest route, but Eltham College, you know, I... I Eltham understood High there was school. High school. Eltham, sorry, Eltham High School. There was an influential person there, your your PE teacher, or you know, you had some good guidance along the way. You know, some guys from the bike shop, I think, as well. You know, Russell Collette and Damien Grundy, who eventually was your coach. These guys were really influential, and like exactly what you said, it's something that happened to me too in the bunch rides. Is that there wasn't the internet, and you reached out and you learnt from elders and people that you met in bunch rides and people that you just could get a bit of knowledge from, and you took that on board. And I feel like it is really something that. You know, for good and for bad, you can get any information off the internet now. But for me, growing up, I did the same thing. I'd go down to Bandura Bunch and ride with all these different elders and understand I didn't know if they were champions or not. I just listened to what they had to say. And it's only now I look back and think, well, these guys are really good riders and they gave me so much of my time. What was it like with those guys? And, you know, I think you alluded to a couple of them just before. These guys, you, they were rubbing off on you and that's where it sort of came from for you to keep following that dream, that possibility I could be a pro here. Yeah. Um, everyone thought I was an idiot for um, even thinking that I could make it as a professional in, the, in, the, in those times. The first people, I think Kieran Ryan was the rider who was associated mm. with the bike shop in Montmorency who, who had the coaching experience. And because I went, it was about a year after my first race in um, Blue Lake that I signed up to go to the national championships, mountain bike nationals in um, Threadbow. Right. And before that, talking to him and he gave me some advice on, you know, loading and peaking and, oh, yeah, I'll do this and I'll do that. And, okay, and I went there and I was like second at the Nationals and no one knew who I was or anything and in the cross-country sub-junior, like under 16. And I was like, oh, who's this guy? And um, But I'm like, oh, wow, this is working. And um, from there, um, that's where um, I think Damien Grundy saw me and um, mm. it was sort of something where he just, it was that was a pure chance thing and half my luck that, they would open a bike shop around the corner from my high school, Eltham High School. And he opened a shop there. And so I started to talk to him and he saw me racing. And then it's like, oh, yeah, maybe I'd like to start coaching and things. And I said, like, oh, you know, I'd like, want to do this. And I want to, you know, I want to do the national series and maybe try and go to the world championships one day. Would you be interested in coping me and you know, coaching me? And at first he was like, oh, I don't know. But then we started working till we sort of accepted and, and then I started training and, and then having contacts and just good support from the industry and things and just like, Apollo Bicycles back then, they had this, what was for the time, really quite professional organization mm. supplied me with equipment, which I was like single parent family or we didn't have, you know, I had the most basic equipment and the worst clothing and so on. I'm um, just about to get a bike at, at like a, a at a reduced fee, at least I had a mm. bike then that was actually competitive as opposed to something that I look back at it now and I look back at like Peter Grock's story and things where you you, you, when you start on the really bad equipment, then you make it to the top on the bad equipment and then you get the good stuff. They're, mm. they're the ones who, who really become become the really good ones. And um, so I look back at those things and having to perform on really poor equipment was actually, it was actually 
at the time it was miserable, but then I look back and I think the lessons that, that that taught me. But then, and then that just opened the doors and then the mountain biking was accepted into the Olympics. So the national team started there. Yes, mm. Damien Grundy was appointed the coach there. And, and he was sort of, I suppose, my main influence. But along the way, I had made some good friends, Russell Collard, who you mentioned, who was sort mm. of one of the first sort of elite level riders who I got to start riding with often. And another one, the first ride guy, Craig McLean, who I'm in still in regular contact today. He was a guy, he was um, probably sort of top 10 at national level in downhill and cross country then. But he was the first one. I was like, oh, this guy's a mountain bike. Wow, he went to the nationals. Oh, you know, for me as a junior, this is like, oh, wow. I, I just ask him questions. He's like, no. <laughs> what's with the questions but it was like i was just this sponge for information i just want to be better and where do you think this this like competitive sort of well not competitive but this this real drive this sort of um you know because i i feel like i've got it myself this independence um this this ability you know emotional sort of strength you're you're young you're willing to go out and do these things you talk about these rides in the morning no one's forcing you to go out and do that right up king lake in the wet you're a 16 year old you know boy there's many other things on the horizon you know parties are happening drinkings around the corner and you know getting your license all this sort of stuff of course i went through it myself and for some reason i just wasn't deterred you know i just i really knew what i wanted at that point i didn't know about if i was going to make it or not but it was just it was ingrained in me. Is it something that you remember or is this always sort of been with you? Were there different people? Um, no, I was really doing it all on my own and it was really, there was something inside of me because I had this thing, like I said, I'm like, I was reading the magazines like, what, you can make as a professional like this? I'm like, Mm. hang on a second whatever how much training oh okay i just got to train a lot oh is that all okay that just was in my head and that's all i wanted in life if i my, if i go about what my mother says she says no matter what it was even when i was a little kid if i took something i was just crazy about it it's like lego or collecting cars or i don't know building a sandcastle mm. i took it and she, she said this about me as a child and then when i took this i'm like this is what i want to do in life and i i find that like yeah between parties and drinking and all these things, I was like, no, I'm not going out to party with friends. No, no, I'm not doing this. I got a race. I'm meeting the the group to go for a ride at six o'clock in the morning or something. And so I skipped that whole teenage thing, which I'm really grateful for. Because mm. after you retire from racing, you have plenty of time to do that. <laughs> and, and, and you're a little bit wiser about it as well and don't get in so much trouble. There was just this thing inside me that I, I just sort of that cycling, I suppose, discovered for me. Uh, I, I wasn't like I was a competitive in sport. No. I was I was like the um, oh, what's that film uh, Alex Prefontaine is it the mm. the guy who gets the the, the runner who was the gets le- the more he was left on the bench the more motivated he become and then when he finally found his sport and his what his talent thing because he was small and endurance and going to school in America so uh, American rules football wasn't for him I was a bit the same I turned up uh, living in New South Wales I didn't even know how to play what was then VFL and being small and being endurance <laughs> just didn't fit <laughs> who, 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 who yeah I'll just sit on the sideline and watch because who wants me on their team but you know it was a, it was a little bit bad as well i think so it's a great thing about cycling and it's happened to me too i was playing rugby league and you know i felt like in my team you know at that age a lot of other players had to play sport or it was a school sport and then when when i found cycling it was a sport the more i put in the more i got back um and i i love that that was what attracted me to it it was you know, I was very competitive, but also it just what you like exactly what you said. You the reward you got from training and the dedication you put into it as a young as a young sort of teenager, you could see this. I was like, this I wanted more of it. Tell me a little bit about your first sort of 
people that you were hanging out with, especially out here in the Northern Combine. Um, this is a, a racing sort of the road, the road now I'm talking about. Your first sort of experience on the road. You came out and raced with, with a few legends actually, not necessarily in sport, but who have gone on to do amazing things in their life. You know, there's a guy called Michael O'Keefe. He's the founder of an, an amazing brand called Aesop. Which just got sold for 4.5 billion to L'Oreal last week, yeah. Exactly. And then you've got a guy called, you know, Matt Keenan, who we both know is, is an amazing commentator of the Tour de France. There's another a good guy called Graham Carlson, who raced over in Europe as well, who who was mechanicing your car. Um, you know, looking coincidentally, when I did a week of work experience, I was there working on this this Mustang. And he said to me, mate, you know whose car you're looking after there? I was like, oh, no, no idea. Cadell Evans. And I, so I couldn't believe it. I sort of, I sort of love that this is all sort of in, in sync of where I grew up in cycling. And these guys, these people that you're sort of rubbing shoulders with went on to do amazing things. And I feel like just this sort of group that you're around, with yourself included, it was just a nice little small bubble that, you know, early life experiences and challenges along the way. How did that sort of prepare you, you think, later in your career? Now, when you all these connections that come together and the people who went to Europe and those names you mentioned, they're sort of like, I suppose when in my Tour de France career, they're not people who would come to immediate Le Mans. Who is your first coach? Who's your current coach? What team are you with? Or whatever. That's the obvious things. These influences, like they're, they're exactly the riders that you meet with, like I met, an inspiration for me when I was young, Peter Basenko. Mm. Um, I remember racing at a, uh, what was then called VFL Park. Um, What's he better um, known known as? Bulldog Basenko. But he was like, I remember yelling at me when out there, I was doing turns or something to try and try and we were trying to bridge across to the break. I was like, you'll be a bike rider one day, son. You'll be a bike rider. Like, oh, he says, <laughs> So I hope so. And he was just like this hard man of hard men. And, uh, and, um, but, but for me, that was an, an inspiration. And then um, meeting also Matt Keenan uh, in, in younger days. And he was interesting because he sort of had a bit more idea of like the high levels in cycling and going over to be a professional. And he knew a lot of people had mm. gone to Europe and raced and tried to make it. So he sort of, but I think he'd been talking a lot to Damien and probably Russell Collett who knew more about me. So he knew a lot about me and sort of knew, had a good idea of what my early ambitions were and where I wanted to go and and because I also at that time like to have these ambitions to become junior world champion or make us a professional but people just laughed at you because it was ridiculous mm. and sort of like I don't know some little kid who comes up I'm gonna win the formula one one day you know you're like oh. Yeah, good that's on you, nice, mate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 that's where it really started. But it's funny this link of people because some had been to Europe, so there was like there was quite a lot of experience, and they were good people. But I think also just the weather in Melbourne. What I find was one of the early things. It was so variable and unpredictable, and that sort of helped as well. It wasn't like um, we never had cyclocross races in Australia. But if you go to back to the nineties and speak to anyone who raced in club races in Chum Creek mountain bike, and they're like, <laughs> "Why do we need cyclocross? We were just running with a." bikes on our shoulders for half the course because it was just this slickest mud fest but then i come to europe and it's like oh mud what the bike doesn't get traction for like half a lap that's okay it's got suspension it's got tires it's got disc brakes this is easy after you know doing it doing all the 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 chum creek experience on on really um modest equipment and so on we'll look back now and those links and how it all came together it really 
I go back and I remember the first time I rode back after I stopped riding and I rode up um, the Humevale climb, which to me was mm. always one of my favourite climbs. And for me, it was a real, um, to speak with our, our area there, I rode up there and I was thinking, shit, I remember riding up there for the first time and I was this young kid who had big dreams and I had this idea what I wanted to do. I want to be a pro mountain biker. I wanted to ride the Tour de France and all this. Anyway, I go back and ride there. I think it was my last year before my last races in um, 2014, 2015 off-season, getting ready for my last races in my career. And I was thinking, oh, those dreams I had and I was like tick 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 oh shit missing one there but it was really like right I was riding up that climb and you know surround there's no cars there's lie boys running between the those big ferns that weep over, sweep over the road and it's just fantastic but yeah so it's kind of meditative and, and therapeutic even though <laughs> I was actually out training but um yeah I come back and I look at it and I think shit what a great school it wasn't easy but um, it conditioned me well for what to, mm. was to come because I wouldn't say being pros, maybe the, maybe the races I won looked easy, but of course my, my career, I had some great opportunities, but I had some pretty tough moments. And But yeah, there was always just that innate desire, hunger to be better, to do more, to be the best I could. And, and that really drove me right to the very last day to my last race. Well, I sort of wanted to set up that whole beginning because I think it's something that gets overlooked by a lot of young juniors, especially coming out of Australia these days. It's they want the shortcut to the top. They, they see a lot of guys who can travel very easily to Europe and set up in Girona or in Nice or whatever and, and live the pro life before they sort of are pro. And the reason why I wanted to speak to you about that beginning is because it is all about networking and doing, you know, the hard times and this sort of thing and, and just sort of really growing up in the sport. I think it's something that's really missed now and I really wanted to talk to you about that. It's something I experienced myself and I feel like it is somewhat of a dying art. What I really want to jump to now is is this special nickname that I found out about you that I can't believe that slipped by. But I don't know if anyone refers to you as it anymore. Is the lung? Oh, this is a, the lung. I, I, I never never got called that myself, but I love this the, name. <laughs> in the, when I first went to the what was it? It was the selection camp for the national team or something in 1994, and mm. we were all doing the physiology testing, and I. I don't know if it was there or it was a bit later in my career, but I think, you know, because I, for a, for a while at the AS, it was the highest VO2 max ever, ever tested. Um, but that, that was also when I was a mountain biker, because to be a road rider, you also need a bit more muscle to time trial and things. So watts per kilogram actually compromised for that. Sounds crazy to win the Tour de France, watts per kilogram. <laughs> it changed a little bit on that, but anyway. But um, but it was when I was a mountain biker that this was in the in the 90s that and started from there. But uh, it's not, 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 nothing ever caught, anyone ever called to my face. But with the, I don't know, maybe people call me a lot of things behind my back, but with a name like Cadell, I only get called Cadell because it's not like I get mixed up with all the other Chris's, Matthews or Jason's or Simon's or something. I think it's a brilliant name because, it, look, it, it says to what you did become and what you sort of need to. And it's something I think, and I want to continually sort of touch base with you about this, is it's your mind is is about the sport is one of the, the best assets from you, only just sort of understanding a little bit about you. I don't know this for sure, but clearly to be a Tour de France rider, geez, rider you need to have the physical capabilities too and more so so than a classics rider than a sprinter you need to have that big vo2 max um and i think you did have that from what i understand that ability you know a huge um oxygen sort of intake and ability to sort of distribute that over the body i don't know where that sits with everyone else but that was sort of the the foundation but that is only one part of the puzzle and as we sort of discussed before is there is the second part which is the mentality um and something that you continually had to work out you started from a 
young age with it, but you have to continually work this out. You know, the, the, the training is something you can control and get help with, but the psychological stuff, yeah, of course you can get help with that, but it's something you've got to continually work out and manage yourself, isn't it? Yeah, oh, totally. And I think like um, I go think back to my first Grand Tour I did in 2002 and people were like, oh, how do you ride the Tour de France for all the distance and this? And I was like, your legs are tired, but your, your head, your brain is exhausted. <laughs> I remember getting, I think it was day 12 of my first Giro d'Italia that I rode, my first Grand Tour, and I'm riding back to my hotel and I, I get back to the room and I'm like, what room number was I in? And I'm walking around the whole corridor thinking, what damn room? I can't remember what before. Like I was in 312 yesterday, but I'm in 412 today. I don't know, we changed hotels. But, I'm just, it, but I just came to this realisation I'm like, I'm really exhausted. I can't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> I went over there, I went back and forgot what, what room I was in. But it just made me realise how exhausted mentally you become. And of course, in your first grand tour, everything's new and different and you have to get used to it. So you expend more energy mentally. And that's with experience and where cycling is kind of particular in a sport where obviously, inevitably, uh, as much as I don't want to admit it, you do have a physical de- decline mm. as, you, as you age. But in cycling, experience and that, and that, ability to be more efficient whether it's with your legs with your head when to concentrate when you can afford to relax having that judgment to be able to do that and avoid crashes can compensate for a lot and helps mm. um uh, compensate that decline in physical ability cycling in 2023 is changing that but anyway because they're just riding flat out all the time yeah. but anyway <laughs> um we'll get to that later thanks for touching on my background in bamili baranga and so on because when i came into the european peloton I was told you have to do this, you have to do that. You're a GC rider, you should do this. And I was like, hang on a second. I was born in Ben Millie in the Northern Territory. I grew up doing this. I was a mountain biker. Then I switched to the road and now I come to be a GC rider. <laughs> I'm not this run-of-the-mill fabricated rider who came through the French club teams or the Belgian club teams or the Italian club teams where they have people looking after and telling them how they, what they should eat, how they should think, how they should train. I had to go and learn all this on myself. But no, I'm not saying that one, one is better or worse or than the other, but I'm just like, hang on you're taking this guy not a, I'm not a Martian but you're taking this sort of complete foreigner and you're trying to mould him to put him into here it's just hang on a second let's just see what works because just as a I suppose the whole mentality and thing my mentality was was very different having said that when I came to be as a GC rider as the road, and especially crossing over from mountain biking initially, 2001, 2002 to the road, the mentality in mountain bike and road were very, very different and mm. already obviously road cycling being a a team sport most of the time mountain biking being nearly exclusively an individual sport already there you have a, a big change but you know that going into it okay i'm part of a team my job in the team is, is to do this and that the um mentality for me that was difficult to adjust sometimes is like oh the team's doing this that's completely stupid what this is so much better to do but oh the whole team's doing this oh okay so are you but you have to, to follow that. yeah yeah but you have to go and do that even if it's completely stupid what happened though was the road changed and changed and changed to become more like mountain bike mountain biking prepared me okay for when i crossed over it prepared me really well for the change roman road cycling made its big changes 2008 2009 2010 2011 there i was just in my element Mm. what about those years before then and like look i looked at it and you were a a bit of an awakening for me when i saw you in that map a kit especially when you're in that pink map a kit for me, it became like, whoa, we can ride GC Australian riders. And it inspired me even more to go try and become a professional, not a GC man, but just for something aesthetically looking at you in that kit, trying to win the Giro as a young rider. I wanted to become part of that club. But what was it like for you being 
because I, I can imagine being an outsider and not falling into the traps of, yeah, I better just fit into the mold here. You know, I better just have a, you know, an espresso at night, even though I know that's going to keep me up. I better just train with the group, even though I know I don't want to do that. For so long, you held out and went, I know what I need to do. Yeah, yeah, no, I was, I suppose that rule, you could say a stubborn, no, this is what I want to do. This is what I and what I need to do to get to where I want to go, and I'm going to do that. And so I was the yeah the guy who doesn't fit in, and often the journalists and things. Oh, he doesn't fit in. He's strange. He goes and does his own thing. Funnily enough, the whole world of cycling changed and does does exactly what, what you're I was doing. doing there. Yeah. It's like, well, hang on, I don't fit in, or I was ahead of my time, or you were behind the times, or you know. Anyway, and that's not my not for me to make an opinion on. I just had this thing in my head, and I was fixed on this, and that was what I was going to do. And like I had this approach, and I had a bit of a Damien for all the great things we had. We had a certain period. It's like this is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to do it. We do it like this, or I'll find someone else to help me. But I was like, no, this is what I'm going to do. And it was that moment that I really took on everything that I was doing. I was training hard. And that okay, no, just everything I can do in my life to be committed to it. And eight o'clock in, you know, finish eating a meal, go to bed, and all this every hour of my day just dedicated to the sport. Um, but this was like at a young age when not many people were looking to these details. Now I think everyone in the world to a peloton is probably doing exactly this. One guy who I think was um, ahead of his time was Aldo Sass. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with him um, and why you guys actually connected really well. Um, so Aldo Sassi for me was what gave me the whole opportunity to go to the road and I'll say us as Australians, all those results, Grand Tour results, World Championships and all that. If it wasn't for him, maybe I would have come close or got there in another path. But the way that we worked together was he was the most influential person eased single-handedly in um, my road career. Long story short, he was a guy who I think was about 10 years ahead of his time. So same thing, he didn't fit in with what other coaches were doing, what cycling mm. was doing at the time. He passed away in November of 2010. Uh, he got a, um, it was a really quick turnaround thing. I think I rang him, I was at Tirreno Adriatico in 2010. I called him in the office, oh, sorry, I got a headache. And then next day I called, oh, he's not here. And then, oh, so this was like March, 2010, November. He was no more, just this mm. one of the most incredible minds I've ever met in my life. And and just gone like that. Um, what he set up, what he had the opportunity with Dr. Squinzi and Mappe Sport to set up and the research that they did, they were just you know, 10 years ahead of their time. That still carries on today. He had an understudy in Andrea Morelli, who was the biomechanist at Mappe, who took on his uh, Aldo's main riders, me included. And now he made some subtle changes to Aldo's training, training and um, a little bit less volume, not absolutely exhausted, but a little bit sharper, more specific training, more specific intervals. Um, and that, you know, that was 2011 where I just had this string of results, which was one of my best year ever. But that carried on from there. Yeah, and in, in summary, Aldo was single most influential person in my career. And um, yeah, he was a guy who was 10 years ahead of his time. He saw me racing. He'd been following me, I found out later. They'd been, Mappe had been following me since about 1996 hmm. um, and watching me. And they came, he came to me, um, it was the night before the Worlds in Portugal, 2001, my first pro Worlds, and um, came to me and said, oh, we would... Um, would you like to come to our team and develop as a Grand Tour rider? Yes. I was like 24 years old. Um, do you have a contract? Yes. Can you get out of it? Maybe. Um, and because I had a contract wow. with mountain bikes and things, but there was all this infighting within the team and things, and it wasn't. Because you're, you're on no, Seiko. You're on Seiko. No, Volvo Cannondale mountain bike. Oh, right, right. And I was yeah. racing a bit with Seiko. 
And um, but there was all these problems going in the team, and I wasn't enjoying going to the races anymore. So I was sort of like, oh, hang on, here's some people who really want to work with me. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was kind of elitist in my approach. It's like, okay, mm. what do I need to do to be better and be the best? And no, no, hang out, be friends. No, 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 no. We need this to win. And mm. I, I think also, I think one thing I see also us as Australians, we go over and I, w- I was coming over five, six, 10 months a year at a time. I think a lot of the Europeans, you can tell them 10 times, but they don't understand that. It's like you go away, I go away from home for 10 months a year at a time. You know, I, I had this thing, uh, my mum would always take me to the airport. My mum, 46 years old, my mum, she still comes and picks me up from the airport. Hi, mum. Well, she drops me off at the airport because I'm not going to see it. But see you, mum, see you in October. And it's still the same thing, but I sort of, I don't know, it's it's this thing that I'd be leaving in January. I'll see you, mum, see you in October. Hmm. It was this thing and it's still the same today. Except for me, I was making all these sacrifices to be over there. I wasn't going to cut myself short by like not training as good as I could or not being particular, meticulous with my equipment to be let down, especially mountain biking. You know, for me, when you left MAPE and you went to T-Mobile, I was a young guy who was watching that rivalry between Ulrich and Armstrong, and I was a big T-Mobile fan. I thought, wow, this is it. We've got him, Cadell. He's going to be in, you know, in my eyes, the squad, the awesome squad. But they didn't race you any grand tours. You quickly made the shift to Lotto, and that's where your big sort of Tour de France campaign started, and you started really well there um, in your first grand tour, finished eighth in, uh, sorry, in your first Tour de France, finished eighth in your first tour, fourth and two seconds there as well. Tell me a little bit of that Lotto period, um, and I know things changed towards the end, but you know, when you first went across to Lotto after Team Mobile, you were sort of okay. This is this is it. I've got this this team behind me. They had the belief in you. Is that was that the feeling? Um, oh, in Team Mobile, I was quickly relegated to the B team, so I didn't get to do any of the big races that I wanted to. Contrast to that, after two years of no results, not many teams were interested in in me. I think um, in a big part, probably Robbie McEwen behind the scenes was um, mm. saying uh, saying good things about me. Um, that Lotto had belief in me, and all of a sudden, I went from not being able to do any races that I wanted to do to all of a sudden doing too many. But for me, I just want an opportunity to be in the big races again and race at the front. That was my main thing. So I train, train went there. There was a, uh, we've gotten a break with Robbie at the national championships and I towed him to the line. So we win that. Okay. you hopefully you've got some belief in me as a teammate. Now I'll go away and start you know, doing all that and doing these other races. And, and then all of a sudden it was a time when um, I was just on this points accumulation and all of a sudden, Oh, we take Cadell to every hilly stage race and he can finish in the top 10 and get points. So all of a sudden oh. I'm going to hilly, hilly stage race and to get points. I'm like, oh, now we're going to the tour. Oh, now we have to get a big result. Right. <laughs> I'm doing like GC from Ruta del Sol to <laughs> Paranese. Between Paranese. So we, oh, yeah, I got a, bit of a, got a bit of respite there because I only went for the win in the Ardennes. And then oh, a little bit of a rest and then, no, no, Romandy. And then a little bit of a rest and then, yeah, training camps, Dauphiné, Tour, and then, hey, um, come oh, come do the Vuelta or whatever. Anyway, so I just went to doing all these races, but as my results at the Tour were getting better, they sort of had a bit of faith in me. Well, you can do a few less races to get the result better in the Tour, but then the second year, 2008, getting second in the Tour two years in a row, then team lost complete faith in me and those, yeah, it was over. And, and those two seconds, and I could be wrong here, are in the top 10 closest second places, I think, in all, all time or some, oh, yeah, some crazy first, like, statistic like that. Yeah, it's like uh, number three and number five or something. They lost faith in you, but did you lose faith in them? Like how, how was the relationship there and, and, and how are you feeling at this point? Because you're so, you're so close. Like it's, it's not like I – I know second is second, but 
there were other things that were in that. There were injuries that people didn't know about. Um, there wasn't. It wasn't just um, rolling in second and you know coming from third to get second. It was just just missing out and the team losing faith in you. And where was your head at at, at those times in you know seven and eight? Yeah, especially like you touched on the you know, two thousand eight. I had like in my mind, and Aldo Sassi goes and does his numbers, and oh, that crash cost you five percent. In my mind, I had the legs to get sixth, maybe fourth, and then I was like fighting for the win to the end. I'm like, that was actually a really good result. But me knowing what how I was, how I raced. My thing was I had to race so because I didn't have a team that could defend yellow, I had to race behind to come back. But you have to understand when you're going like that split in the crosswind with Saxo Bank the year that Sastre won, there's 10 guys in front or something, 13 guys in front for Saxo Bank and me solo. If I puncture, mm. boom, GC's over for me for the whole tour. I'm, I'm on my own. <laughs> I was like going against these guys and Contador and US Postal Service and because the year the year before, like everyone's, oh, can you beat Contador? Can you beat Contador? I remember driving to the start and I'm like, director, hey, keep time checks on Lightheimer because he could come back on me as well. But mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm in this sandwich of US Postal Service guys who have, you know, they've got this experience of riding the Tour de France like no other team. And, um, but I just had to, like, I, was, I had to time my run like I did in 2011. I just had to be there and, and wait. In 2011, maybe had, we had a team to defend yellow, but not in the mountains. So then when you're going against two Schleck brothers on their own, because they're teammates, they, they could play off each other. And being brothers, it makes it a bit, <laughs> it's not like one's going to be selfish and if he's going to lose, make the other one lose, right? It's a different relationship there. But but that's just the way I had to race. And, you know, I just came came up a little bit short. But, of course, in my thinking was in percentage terms, 23 seconds over 85 hours of racing. That's pretty close. It's I'll, I'll keep working close. on this. I'll keep, I'll keep working on this because I've still got a lot more left in the tank and a lot more desire and I feel like it. I haven't quite given it everything yet and I'm not giving up till I have given it everything. And then 2010 for me was uh, 2009. The team had lost complete faith in me. It was just, uh, I, I went through the motions through it, but you know, I remember November, December before that year and it's like, this got no chance. <laughs> the way the, the miscommunications in the team and things were going and, and it was really the from the time trial against Sastre, the team there just, towards me just completely changed that issue towards me completely changed and um 2010 was um i read into yellow but i broke my elbow that day for mm. me that was one of the do i have regrets for my career i'm like shit that stupid little crash i stopped to go to the toilet at the start of the stage come back to the peloton i think the same thing someone passed on the inside road and some gravel took me out from behind i'm like <laughs> And this is now, this is now with BMC, isn't it? Yeah, this was in BMC, and oh, in that period, like having seen that the team had lost faith in me, and my manager for my whole road career was uh, Tony Romiger, and it was he who came to me and said, "Look, you can go through with this contract, but if you want to win the tour, you're going to have to change teams." There's this team that's on the rise. There's this guy Andy Reese who believes in this. He's got a long term, and I was like, "That's a good idea." And but um, it wasn't, uh, but it wasn't a world tour. Well, what it was called no. back then, it wasn't a pro tour team. Like, how, how were you? To, how were you able to make that decision in your own mind? Like, okay, I'm going to take a step down. I don't even know if this team's going to be in the tour. Like, they're, they're big decisions. Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing I needed, and this was a meeting I had with um, the team manager, and it was actually the meeting was the day before the World Championships in 2009, which no one would normally do that, but I just. Hmm. 
<laughs> I sat down with Jim Ockwix. I'd heard about a lot about him. I'd read a lot about him, you know, all the years reading all the American cycling magazines and things. And he just asked me questions and this, and we hear this about you and this, and there's all these things I don't fit in and a bit particular. And so I'm like, well, tell me what. Well, here, this is why I did this. This is why I did this. This is why I did this. This is why. I did this. Oh, right, right. This is my situation. Da, 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 da. And then at the end of the conversation, he said, all you need is someone who has faith in you. All you need is a team that has confidence in you. That's all I totally. want. Yeah, that's all I want. That's all I want. And of course, I went back and and like I was doing this because they were setting up the Orica team at this time, so I couldn't say anything to anyone, yeah. and I had a contract and things. And anyway, I went back and anyway, I got up the next morning and like a handbrake had been let off. Got on my bike and it was the World Championships in Mendrisio and. I rode off and got a rainbow jersey. Aldo Sassi was there after the finish line with uh, Dr. Squinzy and we <laughs> had a little cry together uh, behind the finish line in secret and, and that was uh, that was the start of the next part of my career. Well, before we skip on from that, there's a, there's a mutual friend of ours, Simon Clark. I, I remember he's told me this story. I haven't actually – I haven't got a chance to speak to him about it again. I want to touch up on it again. But that night before you rode the World Championships, I, I think you were rooming with Simon. Um, Simon's yeah. – Yeah, yeah, Simon and I rooted together, yeah. Yeah, and he, he was a young guy then. And from what I understand, even even the Australian team at that point, you just come out of the Vuelta, you just finished podium on the Vuelta Espana, you're in good form and coming to literally a home world championships for you. You knew those roads by the back of your hand. Your house was only a few kilometres from the course. I'm, I'm three kilometres away from the finish line now. There we go, right. And so th- from what I understand too, even the own the your own country, your own Australian team still weren't showing you that sort of faith you were looking for. Yeah, well, I suppose by this time, thanks to all these um, people's lack of faith in me, I was pretty well conditioned to it and I knew how to deal with it. And I was like, um, yeah, I was like, oh, well, um, Simon, um, if you can do this and this for me, I think we can do something here. And he had faith in me, he got me my feedbacks, he hung with me for as long as he could. And then, and yeah, so basically, like, Teams early, Michael Rogers riding, being the break, and and that like that all worked in my favour in the in the end because that was for the the good of the team. But in the end, it was, yeah, I I, I went there and Simon and I won that world. Yeah, sorry, no disrespect, but. I don't need to tell the other guys on the team that, um, yeah. And, but yeah, thanks to that. And, and it's funny that Simon, and I, I knew of him before. And it's funny. We were, we were both from Melbourne and I didn't know how similar paths we taken to get to cycling. He was track and road coming out was mountain bike and road coming to where we are today, but we sort of, we came together and he had a real tough, run at the start of his career and so when he came through with the tour with the win last year knowing what he'd been through like I, yeah I, I saw that and I really felt for him but I think he sort of probably saw saw in me a lot of himself. what he'd been through we, we saw yeah. in each other what we'd been through and and having followed similar pathways and and Simon's thing was he was sort of like he said to me afterwards oh, I knew you're going to be up because you were on the rise because you had a better result in the second time trial in the Vuelta than the first time trial whereas normally my best that's sort of like, I didn't even wasn't didn't even think of that it's like, oh yeah it's probably a good indicator isn't it <laughs> but anyway <laughs> concentrated on the thing at hand in the details in front of you as, as you are as a bike rider fortunately he had there to do what he had to do and then i could do play the part in the in the last bit and, and for me it was also the after the um Fuelta where i punched it on the second last climb the tv motorbike stopped in the middle of the road to film me getting a wheel change it was the change between 11 and 12 speed the neutral service was there but the thing was that TV motorbike stopped in the middle of the road and no cars could pass. So it blocked all the team cars. So I mm. had no assistance. I lost, I think it was a, a minute 36 or something to um, Alessandro Valverde, who 
<clears throat> maybe shouldn't have been racing in that period. And then I was third at like a minute 26 or something. And I was just like, I was, I was, yeah, going back to what we were speaking about before. It's like, you know, I put everything in this sport and the fact that I get beaten by someone who maybe shouldn't have even been racing in that period, mm. allowed to race in that period was for me, it was a real, that was one of the few times cycling for me really spat in my face. Anyway, to touch on this, I was like, oh, I'll try again. And things went my way the following week in Mendrizio and, yeah, the sort of the Spanish guys who I was actually, they were my point of reference for the final there. They sort of cancelled each other out in the end. And, um, and yeah, things things went my way, but also there, it's just a little bit there with Kolobnev and Rodriguez. We're three away. And I think um, Kolobnev's there, Rodriguez is like, oh, they could all open a gap. And one looks at the other to close the gap. That gap becomes a bigger mm. gap. And I'm like, I wouldn't be doing that if I were you boys. And off I went. Um, well, I, th- but, uh, I think you're know, there. It's I- just luck. What decision do they take? If, if Rodriguez had done one surge and Kolob never come, and maybe it would have been a whole different result. Oh. I don't know. I don't believe so. I've recently just watched that. And I think those guys had no chance. You were just out of the seat the whole way up that climb. And those two guys hanging by grim death there. That was an attack that was no one was going to be able to cover. Um, it was mm. it was the start of a new era for you. I guess the, the final era um, at BMC. Oh. Like you said, it was a breath of fresh air, some faith behind you. And look, you really did start well. And when we think about the the Giro, um, an iconic Giro stage, um, it was almost a Strata Bianca stage where you you fought out with Vinokurov, a personal a personal favourite of mine. You know, we got to see the muddy, the gruesomeness of it. You know, you had other some other great results there with the team. But what was it like that feeling, being in the squad and feeling that? that faith that first year and like okay this is actually true what he said in the meeting this is they do they do believe yeah, in me yeah i was a little bit that um it was funny because we came out we didn't know what races we could go in because we were continental so oh we can do how well we've got to start in tour down the oh great oh come out george and the guys are coming out to it another lance was out there that year as well actually and um anyway um, i was sitting down at one of the first stages to it and it was on the first races new team and everything oh cool and we're sitting there and I was just like, shit, there's something different here. What is it? It's like, people are happy to be here. Ah, yeah. negative, you know, in the footy they speak about the culture. It's like, I can't believe how, what cloud of negativity groups, teams, businesses can get into. And once they're yeah. in it, they don't even realise they're in this cloud of negativity because this moment where, funnily enough, we were sitting outside in the sun putting on the sunscreen or something to do, I was just like, Everyone's just happy to be here. And why wouldn't you be? We're pros at a bike race, the sun's shining, and we've got an opportunity to race. And and mm. um, that was that was my first thing. And that was a little bit one of those little moments of like, you know, I've been living in this under this like yeah, cloud. <laughs> it's been follow, following me wherever I go. Um that that was the first thing. And then um it was just a bit hard to ma- after that, the equipment and things and the the whole mentality of the team is and Andy Reese is I don't want ever a rider to have a problem with equipment. I want to provide the best material and and then I was like, this is perfect art to Bianca stage reconnaissance and I rode the last corner of the climb six times or whatever and they're like what the hell are you doing here it's like for the finish to Strata Bianca and all the tire choices and the bike change and where are we all this and it was just like me being a mountain biker and okay mm. I'm on a stage for a grand tour and then I think it was Fabio Baldato which is interesting was my director then and, and I remember I remember like I went back and rode like the finish like five times and the, the other guys are going back to the coffee shop and they're having a coffee out in the sun they come back and he said laughed at me oh do you know where the do you know the last corner yet and he sort of laughed at me and he said it in a sort of condescending manner and then of course we come into the um the race and it's pouring rain and muddy and i've i'm coming into last corner and i had uh, vinokurov and kunig on the winner and i've led mm. into the 
village centre, if I remember correctly. I've taken the lead on the downhill and I've led in, which you would never do, of course. You don't lead a K to go for a, when you've got two guys on the wheel, right? And it's like, I'm going through the cobbled town centre. I'm like, if you boys can follow me through this last corner, you deserve to win. <laughs> I just Because I knew the last corner and no one could follow me and I just rolled up to the finish line and won the stage. Baldato was the director of... Um, Pog and Flanders this race yeah. and it was sort of funny because I was watching Pog and I'm like no one would do this damn I bet Baldato's in the car and sure enough yeah. <laughs> they show the images and the things I was sending a message to Fabio and, and um but um yeah it's, it's those little things but it's that mountain biking what mountain biking taught me mm. 20 years earlier was just it was just perfect for that and I have to say particularly that stage of all it's all muddy and people couldn't see and that number it's like yeah 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 when your glasses get like that you put them down here and then you squirt them with water and then the front mm. derailleur gets a bit sticky you squirt some water on there you get another bottle or you squirt some water in the chain clean it up a bit you ride big big so your chain doesn't because if it gets full of mud it'll can skip on the gears and just the little things like this for me it was just second nature and even the mountain bikers they don't need to do this today with the material so good now but back in the 90s you had to do all these things you had to. Chum yeah. Creek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> And uh, but anyway, anyway, that's sort of my my thing where the mountain biking prepared me so well. We're now seeing a lot more gravel introduced into the road races that we once raced. You know, the the Grand Tours and other races, but also that first. I'm, I don't know exactly, but I want to say it's one of the first, if not the first, that gravel stage that you did do in the 2010 Giro, the Strada Bianchi stage. What was the opinion of the riders when that was presented? In the you know, of course, you've got the Col de Finestra, but never really a race where you were descending on gravel roads and you know the strata bianchi is another another kettle of fish um opposed to riding up gravel climbs i'm talking about racing on gravel roads um what was that like in the early days i know it's only 10 years ago or just a bit more yeah but i can imagine it ago. wasn't really accepted as much as today i think it was about 2005 was the first edition of strata bianca me as a rider i'm going like, to do that race because mm. i know it's this old epic how racing was years ago but i think it's the acceptance of riding on on dirt roads but most of all it's the tv interest is just spectacular because mm. like the interest of paru bay if you didn't have cobbles it wouldn't be quite such an interesting place <laughs> <laughs> no offense to the cobbles or paru bay but it wouldn't you didn't have cobbles it'd just be another it'd be another race it'd be a paru bruxelles or uh yeah, yeah. Paritour or uh, Paritour has gravel in it as well now. Mm. But it's the TV interest is, is so great that, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great spectacle. I, I want to have in the Great Ocean Road Race gravel as well, but people travel from so far away and they come down there and they get there and they puncture there and maybe they're out of the race because if they punctured on the gravel or something. It's a little bit, some people involved in the race don't want that. But it's, yeah, it's a great spectacle. I think it's a healthy, I suppose, evolution of the sport because if the sport goes the way that I fear it may, where we're all going to be riding gravel because there's just going to be too many cars everywhere. Maybe we'll have self-driving cars that don't run over cyclists then. <laughs> maybe it's worse, I don't know. Um, but it seems it's 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 possible it's going to go that way and, well, isn't this great? because we can be like the pros but we, we don't it'll be it'll maybe become in in 20 years time our children will go oh wow I'm right. I, I got to ride on the tarmac today dad we went on, a, we went on an asphalt ride <laughs> oh, it was really cool there were asphalt there was an asphalt section oh we did 50k an hour I had to pump up oh. my tires I had to put two bar in them <laughs> Let's get back on the road. Uh, lastly, but definitely not leastly, is I want to talk to you about 2011, the Tour de France win. Very, very, what is even the right word? It was just amazing. It was beautiful. It was, it happened. The first Australian winner, but for you, this long fight with the race, it clicked, it happened. 
the right team, the right support, the right form, everything came together for you. Let's talk about it a little bit. Um, And I know you've spoken about it a lot, but things started off really well with that triple T um, in the beginning, you know, a team BMC, you know, I looked at the roster again to remind myself just the other day, you know, it was, it was a great team. You had George there, you had Bogard, um, you know, even Santa Amita was a guy that I rode with. It was, it was a strong team, but they weren't, it wasn't a rock star team, but they just glued together. Um, you might disagree with me, but I think it was just that from the outside, it looked like a team, like you said, wanted to be there. They wanted to ride together. Was that the difference that took me through one, the, the squad and, and the Tour de France, I guess, 211. Yeah, oh, oh, briefly it was, um, yeah, we, we weren't the strongest team on paper, certainly not in the mountains anyway, but we were the strongly unified. Mm. And I think it was sort of the, we'd sort of, we'd all come to this small team together or a small team. We were, we came out of the World Tour teams to come to this team that was building together. And um, that was sort of, I suppose, part of it. But I think that year, the, well, the year before, oh, I sort of a little regret of mine. I had bad luck in that, but I, I was really well positioned to do a good tour. Contador went on to win the tour in 2010 on the cobbled stage. I think I took two minutes 30 on him or something. Um, So I was really well positioned to mm. have a good tour. So I was a bit like, and in the odds and things, I couldn't believe it, how quickly you forget, forget forgotten in the sport but in my mind i was like i can i can win this i don't don't need to have good luck i just don't have any bad luck and um and we had a we had a really good run of events during that year where we were racing together and and we had wins together and i think the more we rode together the more we won together the strength that we were unified and the the stronger we were believed in each other and it wasn't like a team building thing with a psychologist or whatever it was like what i think really came down to was my mind and the other guys have been able to answer this better, but I got the feeling that no one wanted to be the weak link in the chain. So everyone mm. went and did everything they could to not be the the weak link in the chain in the in, the, in that Tour de France team. And um, so everyone went and did their best. No one said anything. No one complained. We're just going to go and do our best and see what we can do. We didn't have any pressure. No one was expecting us to win or anything. But but I think you know, the first team meeting was like, I just go in. Look, I think if we do this and this, we can be on the podium. How mm. well we do this, this, and this determines what step of the podium we'll be on. And we just went through what what we did. And now we had you know, issues and things in the race, but they, they were in the flat stages or something bike changes and things where we had guys like Bulgard and George who could George who could stay calm, Bulgard who could ride on the flat in the wind all day and <laughs> um Steve who could go up who really good like on the uh, was it the Galibier the second time up who was right there who got me across back to the group and and um and that was it was our, our strength in unity I think that was really um made us stronger and um yeah and then yeah avoiding bad luck the bad luck we had we could we could look after and and just yeah that was yeah everyone saw it on tv and what happened there and oh the whole Galibier stage and things like the the famous the famous one the finish on Galibier that for me was really um in my mind it was um 2011 or 20 years since my first bike race in Blue Lake in 1991 in in, in Plenty and um, everything I'd learned from that first race to that day I had to put into action that day and but the, the main thing in that position is obviously being good being good staying calm being calculating and and um, but staying calm under um, <clears throat> somewhat a large amount of pressure and, and that was you know that was the, the biggest thing to to, to the it was the key to the to hot, keeping things together on that day tell, tell us a little bit about the Glivier stage if everyone doesn't know exactly what happened there and and how you know because you're put in a situation where you just had to take control and set the tour up for yourself um, essentially run us through what happened that day yeah well basically I was Stewie actually uh, Grady and um, Frank and Andy had come up with this idea the only way they're going to beat us it's risky is to go away and get to the foot of the Glibier well ahead and what happened by doing that was they made the Izuard the climb before so difficult that we get to the bottom of the Izuard and 
nearly everyone was on their own or anyone who had teammates because Steve Morabido was there, I think, and he did like one turn and he was done. Uh, Uskatel had guys, they did like one turn each, they were all done. So we got into the valley of, um, what's it there, Brianson, up towards the uh, Lothare and onto the Glibier, and there was no, there was only team leaders left. And so it wasn't that they were riding so fast, it was sort of they'd eliminated the people who could otherwise close that, what isn't a sizable mm. gap, weren't there to do that, and no team leader's going to go and ride on the flat and compromise their, their GC to close the gap for someone else. So we found ourselves at the bottom of the climb, and Contador was actually one of the Initiators. I think it was fifth on GC then, and it's like, oh, um, do you want me to ride? <laughs> yeah, someone's got to start, and I think I started riding with him, and then I just was that I a, think it was not was that a strange yeah. sensation, just like two GC guys swapping off, like you'd been dropped out the back of the peloton, something that I'd normally do. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a GC rider, you sort of never actually, well, yeah. one or two ex- chances I've experienced being dropped in the peloton to ride turns to come back. Yeah, it's kind of unusual. But yeah, I contour, do you want me to ride? I'm like, oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> um, but he started and then I took on and it was, I think it was six or nine Ks to go or something from the finish and no one wanted to ride with me. And the only one, and this is a funny thing in that group, if you go back and look at it, maybe um, I had my race mind on, so I was. But the only one I saw who could ride was um, Bocler had um, Pierre Roland with him. Yeah, but do you think Bocler was going to help me win the Tour de France? No way. In my mind, he he compromised his podium position by doing that. But you know, he doesn't want to help me win. You're king of the tour now. You ride. Okay, mm. get out of my way, folks. Not wasting my time. So um, he wasn't going <laughs> to ride, and 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 yeah, so Pierre Roland sitting there had the legs to ride, but he said so, he got his rewards the next day. Um, and so I just had to ride to the finish. And I think for me was, of course, I had to close to Andy, close the gap. But I had Frank Frank Schleck on the wheel, who was third on GC. So I was kind of like, hang on, I've got to close as much as I can, but I've got to say something in reserve because he's going to start attacking me, right? Or, or I don't know. Is he going to? Is he going to attack? Is he going to kind jump across to his brother? Is he stuffed? I don't know. But I had to keep something in reserve there, so it wasn't that I got to like 300 meters to go and he jumped away. I'm like, oh, okay, that's manageable. Mm. Um, now I can bury myself to close and just not lose any seconds and and you know put myself in a hole kind of kind of thing. But before that, I had to sort of ride within myself. If he started hitting me at two one k go two k's to go, I, I had to have something in reserve to better cover those kinds of moves. So um, so that was yeah it was 20 years of uh, experience uh, put into uh, nine kilometers of my career. It was all on TV and everyone could see it. It was probably among the best nine kilometers I ever did on a bike in my life. Well, you spoke about a couple of guys there. I want to ask you one of the questions just before we finish up talking about the tour, but your, your biggest sort of competitor when you talk about the GC guys, I would have said, you know, maybe it was Contador, maybe it was the, the Schleck brothers, but I feel like you and the Schleckies had a bit of a mutual sort of respect. I could be completely wrong. Um, and it sounds like there, Alberto, I don't know, maybe this is a one-off. Maybe you guys didn't get on or maybe you did. I don't know. Who was sort of your biggest rival and... Did you sort of put that stuff aside and it, they became just competitors in the moment or what was it like yeah. up there, the mutual respect? I don't know what it'd be like for you guys. Well, there was certainly mutual respect within the racing, but so I, I could never have a friendly conversation with Contador until uh, we'd both retired and I saw him at the Giro presentation. I sat down and talked with him once because until then it was, we were always, nearly every race we went to, we were against each other, whether it was Dauphiné or Pays Basque or Paris-Nice or Tour or whatever. We were always going head to head with each other. So we never had a friendly conversation ever um whereas the schlecks we had more uh um yeah much more mutual friendship and i'd say like frank and andy especially frank because he's 
pre-COVID, I'd often see them at different events, whether it was their, their ride that they have in their Grand Fonda or, or other events we'd cross bars at. Always saw them, we always catch up and, you know, have a beer together. And, and so that was a real friendship there. And mm. and um, you probably find this year when you retire, ones who maybe didn't get along with his riders, you become like <laughs> great friends with afterwards. It's, so in that, in that regard, um, Contador was my hardest. He was the hardest man to beat. Mm. He was, you had to be really good. You had to be really clever and you had to be a little bit lucky as well because he was, mm. when he was on, he was hard and mentally. Really? You think, you think this? You think this guy when he won on the stage on um, when he was in Astami, he won on the um, the stage into Switzerland there in um, Valais there. So he was going to win the tour, but he was going back to get his own bottles from the car because Lance was on the team and there was infighting oh within gosh. the team. And so he was going back to like his mechanic, I think, was giving him bottles or something from the car. He wouldn't even take them from the Brunel and all this. You think, but you think to have this mentality and then go away and win the tour. He nearly dropped the TV motorbike on that finish, I remember. What was the stage there? Not Lanza Hyde, that's on the other end. Um, I can't remember this. Um, I can't Verbier. think of it either. Stage of Verbier. Ah, <clears throat> oh, right, yes. I think it was Verbier, yeah. yeah, if I remember correctly. Go through the tunnel, take a left, get steep, right. Um, <laughs> I remember the climb, but I can't remember the, the, the name of it. But anyway, but yeah, he was mentally really, really tough. Talk me through the last time trial at the, at the 2011 tour. Um, and you need to take two minutes, I think, wasn't it? Off, oh no, a minute, sorry, off Frank. Uh, so off Andy and you being a much more superior time trialer rolling down that ramp were you still feeling the pressure I can imagine you were but was it a sort of a comfortable sort of pressure I know that a lot of preparation went into this I've heard about this this preparation in, with Dolphin A and understanding that you know Dolphin A had the same time trial that year before the race Trek Leopard didn't decide to do well the, the two the two riders um, Frank and Ian didn't do Dolphin A for some unknown reason you decided to do it because you wanted to recon the, the time trial totally, tell me about yeah. this this final time trial and what you were feeling rolling down with the potentially now you could control a situation because it was an individual time trial and rolling into Paris sort of you know just after that Oh, I'd been in that situation before in 2007, 2008. And in both occasions, people thought I was going to win. Everyone was actually kind of convinced I was going to win. Um, so I was sort of like, <laughs> I wasn't taking it. So oh, this is done kind of thing. Mm. Um, yeah, we prepared everything really well. And this was a part of the thing going to BMC and choosing the material and doing anything. I could, I was allowed to do that. And they had a bike built specifically for me and not exactly for that time trial, but so that if I came to this situation, I had that, you know, everything was... I was I was I had the I had the best I was the best equipped um, or equivalent to the best equipped rider in the in the race. What specifically and, um, did they have for that time trial? How did they t- change um, the time was, trial bike? We had a we had a time trial bike that fitted me. <laughs> that was a big thing as opposed. <laughs> oh, that's to, good. That's handy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A bike that had custom made handlebars, and you were allowed to have them then. And, and yeah, I had a really good bike and wheels and everything that was the best of the best whereas in times gone by you go into these time trials and not that i was one to focus on it i truly tried to put it out of my mind but when people come and tell you oh yeah you lose one second per kilometer with these wheels over that one or something you're just like oh, it's a 40k time trial i've got two minutes to make up i don't want to know that i'm going to lose no. 40 seconds just for my front wheel or whatever and we had the chance to choose everything and that was my thing to go to Dorf, and i was surprised that the select brothers didn't go there this is a perfect opportunity to try anything and i chose all the equipment tires gearing everything and just knew what i wanted to do and that was about getting on the start line and doing it i did also see i think andy in my mind observations as that little mind game athlete thing i I saw with him that he didn't have a big enough gap on Alpe d'Huez mm. and um, Galibier that he wanted. So he wasn't 
confident that he could hold it. So I saw that as well. So in me, that gave me a lot of confidence, um, thinking that oh, I think he feels he's already beaten, which makes it much easier going to a time trial. So um, that was that was the main part of it. And then the whole time trial was, you know, it was a bit of flat, a bit, a bit of downhill, a bit of climbing. And it was really all um, my best time trials are the um, changing rhythm and, and variations. And that, and that was really like that. And having done the reconnaissance and everything, I could make up time on the downhills and everything. Mm. I wrote a, um, I was on the phone to him just the other day, the material guy, there, Stefano Katai, who's an ex-rider. And um, uh, he was like, no, no, use this uh, time trial tyre, a track tyre, you save maybe 40 kilometres or 30, 30 seconds over 40 kilometres or something. It's like, no, 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 put the road tyre and put the road tyre because I know I'm going to take more than 40 seconds on this downhill if I've got that tyre. Um, <laughs> and so um, my God, so often you've got a road tire on the front. There was then there was a big difference between there were Contis then where this uh, they were real soft compound, real sticky, and now now everyone's much closer in the in the tire in the tire sector. But uh, back then, Contis I remember the tire there. exactly. It was a very <clears throat> sticky tire. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a bit slow, but you could rail down the downhills like nothing yeah. else. So anyway, and well, that was one of the little things that uh, I remember going back to it. But um, yeah, it, it all came together. But Obviously, my, my main thing is, like, compared to the other two times, you go two k's down the road, four k's down the road, oh, you're 20 seconds up, and you're like, here we go, how fast do we need to go? As opposed to, oh, you're 10 seconds down, you're like, oh, I've got to go faster. And you're, you're, but when your foot's you're already on the, the limit, floor, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not like pushing on the accelerator hard, it's going to make it go any faster. So, um, whereas, yeah, this time it's just like, oh, keep accelerating, it just keeps going. Um, when you're in that, yeah, when you're in the wind for yellow, that, that's, yeah, that's a bit the, the difference. I want to ask you about it because it would have been amazing. Um, I'm a bit of a Tina Arena fan. Tina Arena rocks up to sing the national anthem at the podium. Um, she lives in Paris. She's an Australian. Anyone doesn't know, she's an Australian singer. First time the, the national anthem ever gets sung at the podium at the Tour de France. Was it no, a surprise for you? What, what did you ever, do you have anything to do with that? What, what's the connection between you guys? No, I, until then, no. I have to say from that moment on in my life, my life took a change. So uh, I was like, oh, Tina Arena's here to sing the national anthem. Hug me and kiss me. You're awesome. And I was like, oh, yeah, whatever. You know, I'm just following everything and you're about to be on TV telecast. The images are going to be telecast around the world, probably still telecast sometimes now still. <laughs> Look in front. Is my hat on straight? Is my jersey? You know, they say my, my life changed from that moment onwards for a, for a, for a long period. So sort of like, whatever. <laughs> so this is how life is now. But it was funny. Years later, I got to present her with her um, Hall of Fame award. Wow. Arias, I didn't know that. Which that was amazing. That for me was amazing because they brought me on as a surprise. And I was a bit, actually, I look back now, I was like, geez, I was such a fanboy. I was about, I couldn't, can I stand up straight? This and because I was sitting with Holly Minogue and Tina Arena standing there on, and it was live on TV, but it was the live of awards that's unedited not like the rest that they edit out and that's all fake stuff that you see there because you see some of the speeches that people make and you're just like oh my god <laughs> but that's all <laughs> we, we were live direct and so it was all raw which is completely different and um but uh, <laughs> it's standing here generally just standing there you know and presenting this thing and i was like <laughs> Oh, this is a little bit too much for my. I can normally stay calm in those kinds of things, but that for me was one of these moments. Where I was like, oh, one of these things that that happens in life. And yeah, I, I, that was the Tour de France. It, it goes beyond. It's, it mm. goes beyond cycling. It goes beyond sport, and that's why um, it's a showcase of it's the big stage of of our sport. I want to talk about the future, the current day. Lastly, before I let you go. There's only one other Australian who's won the Grand Tour, one that slipped away from you, the Giro d'Italia. I think it would have been one that you would have liked to have got as well. Um, but I heard 
a little birdie told me that you were actually down there to see him take the Giro win. Jai Hindley we're talking about. Tell me a little bit about Jai or what you know about Jai and what you think about this new generation and what his chances are, you know, and how you sort of feel about him moving on and trying to tackle the tour. Yeah, it's um, oh, it's um, it's going to be a big step for him going to the tour. I think um, like he's from when he was against um, Gehigan Hart, if I can say his name correctly, when he ran second there, it looked like he was going to win and I can relate to that situation. It was during COVID and that. I sort of wanted to contact his team. He's like, do you want me to come and beat the car? Because I think mm. I've been in this situation before for the time trial or something. But it was all COVID and everything. So so I I, I I didn't do that. But, of course, I watched as a, as a, as a real fan and that's for me in cycling now, especially mm. my Stefania. Like, she watches every race. She watches more races than I do. So we, you know, we watched that, of course, as a fan because it was COVID and you couldn't travel but um, when we could go and watch him it was like oh, well let's get in our car and we'll go down and we'll watch him pass by on the finish line and because um, we wanted to go to the podium but it was in the am- amphitheater and we had the baby jogging you can't actually fit in there so um, <laughs> so I didn't actually get to go to the podium but I just watched as a fan on the side of the road and um, and I wasn't I didn't get to speak to him face to face till he came to my race this year actually what he did he amazed me with what he did when it looked like he wasn't going to be able to do it in the Giro mm. last year. So I hope that's going to be indicative of he, in my mind, watching the, looking at the results in Liège and things is like, mm, oh, with him, I'd rather be a bit, a bit mm. ahead of, ahead of, ahead of where he is. If like, that was just me, but, um, but let's just, let's just let him take his path and, and, and let's just, let's just look at it. And I, my advice I gave to myself in my first tour and I give the same advice to him. Okay, let's go and see what you can do. And then based on that, where you can go. And so let's not expect him to be on the podium or anything. Let's just see what he can do. And as long as he can avoid crashes, get everything down on the results sheet and, and see where that is and then take it from there. Because the tour really is, it's a it's a different game and, and it's it's a changing game as well. And what, what was good enough to win the tour two years ago isn't going to be good enough to win the tour in probably even even this year so oh well i i watch uh, from a distance as a fan and um but yeah that's uh, an admiration and and hope of course to see an aussie up there of course and um i'm always ha- happy to see, see them up there and oh, we haven't had our we've had we've had a bit of bad luck our, our compatriots had a bit of bad luck in the last few years so we haven't had other than jai coming through we sort of results aren't we're, we're not so often on the podium as, as we as we as we were used to seeing a few years ago cadell it's been an absolute honour and I'm thank you very much for all those in-depth stories. It's been great. Thanks for coming You're, on. Oh, really great to speak with you all and no, great to talk to you and thanks for thanks for reliving my my mountain bike days and know that listening to you talk to Ned and that, that was that was amazing. It makes me oh it gives me a, a whole renewed perspective. I'm just on that dad thing. That's a bit the priority in my life now. So I'm gonna run <laughs> off and make some sandwiches and go and pick up a, a boy from his sailing school today, if that's all right with you. We'll speak again later. Take care, everyone. Great. Thank you. Well, guys, what did you think of that? Did you learn something about Cadell Evans and how determined he is or was as a cyclist? There's no wonder he kept just coming back. That mentality he has, let alone his amazing physiology, the lung. I love that nickname. I really do. A big thanks goes out to Will Jones who pieces these episodes together for you guys. The Life in the Peloton team, Megan Paul behind the scenes. But of course, Rafa, our proud partner in producing the podcast this year. Guys, in two weeks' time, I have got an absolute cracker of an episode for you as well. It's called The Lead Out. Now, I was a bit of a lead out man myself when I was racing overseas, so it's a job that I really look fondly on, and I think it's an underestimated job. That is an episode I put together over the whole of this year. 
I've got some amazing guests on this. Brett Lancaster, Michael Morkov, Mark Renshaw, Kunda Court, Roger Klug, the best lead-out men in the world, and Fast Freddy Rodriguez. This is an absolute chock-a-block episode. That is going to come to you in two weeks' time. I'm heading over to the Tour de France next week. I'm going to be over there reporting on site with the cycling podcast like I did last year. So if you're not sick of hearing my voice already, get across to the cycling podcast. I'll be doing daily recaps with Francois Tomaso and Lionel Bernie over there on the cycling podcast. But in two weeks' time, we have got the lead out coming to you here at Life in the Peloton. Guys, until then, I hope you enjoy that episode. I hope you enjoy the Tour de France coming up. Stay tuned for that great episode. So guys, until then, cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.